0: This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. Today I'm talking with Andrew Baxter, also known as Drew Breezy. Drew is a retired lieutenant from Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, which includes Tampa, Florida, and its surrounding areas. He has 29 years in law enforcement, and he served in the Air Force for six years since retiring a year ago drew has launched a social media channel called drew breezy uncuffed which is as he describes it the unapologetically honest opinion of a retired police lieutenant drew welcome thank you for joining me
1: well thank you for having me abby i I can't underscore how important it is to have the the interaction of somebody like you to, to keep our foot in the civilian community just to be able to have this discussion and interaction i i've uh, recently found that especially in social media that people are more judgmental than they are curious so i i applaud the curiosity part there's nothing more that cops need right now than legitimacy and the way you get legitimacy is by asking questions so i can't thank you enough for this opportunity
0: well i'm thrilled to have you and you know i love what you're doing it's I search for people like you, officers like you, who will explain it in a way that I can understand it, explain it. And this is Drew Breezy uncuffed, And for my audience, Breezy is B-R-E-A-S-Y. Let's be sure to get that. Um, and we'll, we're going to cover it more in more depth. But you're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. Did I miss anything?
1: Name it. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm good.
0: <laughs> and it's... Well, well, we'll get into more detail, but what I love about it is that you are very accessible, you're very patient, and you don't make me feel foolish if I don't know. So there are a lot of people who try to do what you're doing, but they devolve into vitriol and anger, and it, it's off-putting, right? Because I can't learn from that, you know? Right. So, um, first I want to say the way I found you is your interview with John J. Wiley of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. I actually interviewed Jay for my podcast in episode 27. Loved the interview. It was very personal, very compelling. One of the things that I enjoyed because I kept bleeping you out was that (laughs) you said that come hell or high water, I believe is what you were saying, um, you were going to be a sheriff's deputy. Or specifically Hillsborough. Hills- you knew,
1: right? Yeah, Hillsborough County.
0: How did you know that's what you wanted?
1: I was in the Air Force. I was married at the time. My then wife, she really wanted to stay in the area when I was in the Air Force, and I did too. And I told her the only way I'm going to stay here probably is if we can, is if I can work for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And I saw the the level of professionalism in in the, there are two agencies here in the area. You know, it's it's a matter of preference. It's, it's, uh, I, I liken it to either you're a Yankees fan or you're a Mets fan. I, I was a Yankees fan, in my opinion. And, and uh, I wanted to work for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And for the longest time, she fought me on being in law enforcement. Uh, she was understandably worried. Uh, one day, she just woke up and said, I, th- I think you should apply. Because, I you know, I was getting close to the end of my enlistment. So I applied. One thing led to another. I wasn't able to get into the last sponsored academy they were having at the time, so my recruiter very wisely said, uh, he gave me two options actually, hey, you could become a detention deputy, or you work in the jail, or you can become a dispatcher, and let's just get your foot in the door and then you can navigate from there, and I knew what I had to do to obtain the goal of being a deputy sheriff there, so I did that. I I chose, obviously, to be the dispatcher and not uh, the jail, no offense to the jail people, but... I chose to be a dispatcher and my career kind of took off from there.
0: Right. And we, we will be talking about your time as a dispatcher. You have a number of posts in your, your content about it and it's very emotional and it really affected me. Do you know why you wanted to be in law enforcement?
1: I don't know. Um, I, I, I did some digging. Uh, I was recently, uh, I say recently, a couple years back I went to an executive leadership school at the University of Louisville, the Southern Police Institute, and, and one of those uh, courses is a, a soul-searching course. Uh, it's called What Makes Me Me? Uh, it's presented by a, an ex-chief of police. His name is Alex Ferguson, and uh, he gets everybody in the class to get up and give a presentation about what drives you, you know, what's in your DNA that makes you the person that you are. And I, I, I came across some things like, you know, uh, my father passed away in 2004 and he was obviously a big impact in my life. And his parents came straight from Scotland. And uh, uh, just in the digging of all this, I, I find that, you know, our, our clan's motto is Securi Miseris Disco, which is to secure the weak. So, literally, I, I believe that this has been in my DNA. Like, I, I think that it's been transferred to Sik- Sikor the Week. Now, I, I, I met with some traumas, some childhood traumas along the way that maybe ha- had made me a little bit more apprehensive of the way I deal with protecting people. But also, in that Scottish sense, I, I'm a little hard-headed. So, I'm, I'm not going uh, <laughs> to... I'm, I'm just... I'm going to protect anybody at all costs, even if it's, even if it means, you know, the ultimate sacrifice, which, you know, is quite possible any day you, you work. So, or it's any day you wake up really. So I, I think that's probably where it got, got its roots. As corny as it sounds, it, it may just, I just may have been born with it. You know, I, I was that uh, cop on Halloween every year when I was growing up as a kid and, um, you know, some of the stories about my father and I had sit and listening to the Bearcat scanner. So it, it wasn't like any particular ride along that I bought that, you know, that I got bit by the bug or whatever. But I, I, I believe that I just kind of grew up wanting to do it.
0: So you get into the police department and uh, the sheriff's office. Sorry. That's and right. uh, <laughs> was it what you thought it would be?
1: Um, yes, it was. It, it was uh, the, the chaos is everything I thought it would be. The the excitement is everything I thought it would be. And coming off of a six year career, a good career in the Air Force, the politics are what I thought they would be. I, I didn't think that we would devolve into what we've we've uh, made it to, uh, because uh, what I didn't account for was uh, the social pressures of law enforcement. They're in the spotlight a lot more than the military because military takes action when it's time for military to take action. Law enforcement takes action 24-7, 365. So your probability of making a mistake and that mistake being exposed is, is pretty high. So as a result, they have to run, you know, they call themselves paramilitaristic organizations, but they have to run things a whole way different than the military does. Like, there's a lot more attention to detail and and sometimes it just gets downright petty. And sometimes the people that are paying too much attention to the detail have forgotten what we're there for to begin with. And and so it just it, it, it just becomes difficult sometimes.
0: And are you talking command staff or sure. not understanding I, I, yeah?
1: Yeah, I'm talking command staff. I mean uh, how they handle certain incidents or or the, the attention they pay to certain incidents. Uh, that happen within the department, you're dealing with, you know, 3,500 human beings, and and they're bound to make mistakes. And uh, sometimes we get a little too wrapped up in the optics. And we we kind of, instead of turning that camera on and saying, hey, look, this guy made a mistake, and, and we're doing what we can to fix it, which is also something they say often, but uh, in my opinion, not often enough, and this is nationwide. This is not necessarily where I worked. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a I follow law enforcement. I follow law enforcement stories. So I mean, I'm I'm talking broad, general in law enforcement today. But I, I think sometimes we get a little bit too focused on perfection and forget that uh, it's some of the people that are doling out these punishments or making these judgments within the command staff, or even even me and middle management, or First line supervisors, you, you kind of forget where you came from sometimes and it's easy to do. Like if you've, if you've been skyrocketing in your career for five or 10 years, you, you haven't been in patrol for five or 10 years. You're, you're not, those, those men and women that work in patrol right now are not doing the same job that I did when I was in patrol.
0: Right. Did you like patrol?
1: I loved it. I loved every second of it. I, I, I did, I'll tell you what I disliked. It was the midnight shift because... Of what it did to my body and what it did to my psyche, to be honest, and and but I loved the, the men and women on the midnight shift. I loved the excitement. I loved the fact that there was no traffic that that you could get from point A to point B within you know five minutes instead of forty-five minutes. And and of course here in Florida, the humidity and heat is a little bit lesser at night. So I-, I loved all of those aspects. But, you know, being an older guy on the midnight shift is a little bit more difficult than being a younger guy in the midnight shift.
0: I think it'd just be difficult, period. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. It is.
0: But overall, you loved it, is what you're saying. You loved Patrol.
1: Yeah. You, I, I, I can't remember his name. Is it Anthony that you interviewed in one of your podcasts, uh, who has the Everyday Heroes Network?
0: Yes, Anthony McNeil. He has the Off-Duty podcast and the Everyday Heroes podcast network that I'm a part of.
1: Anthony McNeil, he referred to himself as a shit magnet, and, and that's that was me. Like, I, I drove people insane. I, I, I don't even mean this in a good way, like sometimes, but I drove people insane with just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. So even as a lieutenant, even as a shift commander, I'm driving around on the midnight shift, and they'll put – They'll put an alarm out in an industrial area. And you know, I get on the radio and I'm like, I'm already here. You know, like I just happen to be 10 seconds down the road. I'm always somehow r- right there. And and I'll look, I'm retired now. I can make this uh I can talk a little bit more freely. I don't have a sense of direction. I can I think north is this way and south is this way, you know. Like I don't really have a sense of direction. So um, I don't know if it's divinity or what. Something puts me in the right place at the right time, and, and you know, it happened early in my career and a few major things, and it happened later on in life. I just, I don't know. I just happen to, maybe it's, again, that's part of the DNA. I just happen to have the eyes or the sense or whatever, and it's it's never anything to brag about because the people that try the hardest sometimes are the most frustrated and, for whatever reason, they're never in the right place at the right time. So, like, I, I feel, you know, I feel bad for that part of it. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've been quoted as having the hot hand or I've been given the Eagle Eye Award or whatever, you know, just whatever it is. But it's it's kind of like, I guess you make your own luck, but most of it is just, it's dumb luck.
0: <laughs> well, and you did get into detective work pretty quickly, right? You. Um... I did. I did. So it looks like a lot of uh, narcotics undercover.
1: Yeah, I was kind of watched over by a lieutenant who I made a good impression on it because of that. Exactly everything I just told you, being in the right place at the right time, and I think his assumption was that I had those instincts and I would be I would do well <laughs> in an undercover capacity, but you know, I, I look like this, you know, <laughs> like I, I wasn't a great undercover. I got to be honest. I, I was, I, I was very nervous undercover. I never had a gun with me. Like I could say that now too. I never really had a gun with me because I, it was one more thing to explain. And, and so as a result, there was a lot of insecurity. I think it, I wore it on my face. Uh, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't the dumb, like I'd like to purchase marijuana from you, sir. I wasn't like that, <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't think that uh, I, I would have been uh, Narcotics Officer of the Year by any stretch, but the, 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 what that made me do was it made me grow stronger in the other areas of investigation, such as like a narcotic, you think a narcotics investigation is just, well, you just go buy the dope and that's, no. You go buy the dope for a purpose. Are you establishing probable cause to get a search warrant? Are you, you know... So I became that guy, the investigative guy, the one that knew the case law, the one that wrote the search warrants. I, I wrote, I had the, well, depending on who you are and how you look at it, I had the good fortune of writing a couple wiretaps while I was in in my position. You know, it, it just it, life's what you make it. So perhaps I wasn't the best undercover guy. I was, you know, if you, you stuck me in the middle of a a biker bar, they're gonna they're gonna figure out who I am pretty quick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you say write a wiretap, what does that mean? You get. Approval?
1: Um, yeah, th- th- that's uh, it, that's I, it, 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 that's an intrusion. That's probably higher than a higher burden than doing a search warrant in someone's home. Like you're entering their personal lives, so you're listening to their phone calls for the purpose of extracting criminal information. So you're getting a glimpse of them twenty four seven. Now you can't listen to everything that they're talking about. You, it has to be for a criminal purpose. So. The burden of convincing the state, first of all, the state attorney that you have enough probable cause to listen to somebody's phone. And then collectively, you, with the permission of the state attorney, bringing that to a judge and convincing the court, uh, and it's all, you know, behind closed doors in in camp, you know, in, in the judge's chambers, convincing the court that you have enough probable cause to listen to somebody's phone. It's a higher burden. So I really appreciated the fact that it, it, it exercised my brain. A case like that is walking on a high wire without a net. Because if you do things wrong, you're going to be exposed pretty quickly. And I think that they relied, they being the people I worked with, relied on me to do things right. And so I was able to do these, wire, you know, I was doing one wiretap and it spun into another one. Uh, neither of them were the success that we wanted. We had several arrests and we made a lot of seizures, like property seizures and such. But we didn't get the amount of dope that we thought we were going to get. It just it it missed us somehow. At least we verified what we had probable cause to believe. So with it being a higher burden, it's like a, it's like a uh, the difference between playing double A baseball and major league baseball.
0: <laughs> You're good at the analogies. <laughs> <laughs> So you you were an instructor and teacher for interviews, interrogations, informant handling. So I see you managed the confidential informants. What was
1: that like? What happened in the state of Florida is uh, th- there was a uh, young college, Florida State University student named uh, Rachel. She was caught with some drugs and uh, by uh, Tallahassee Police Department. And the practice of flipping somebody into an informant was probably not as perfected by all agencies or, or not uh, followed closely by all agencies. Perhaps they weren't trained like, like all the other agencies. So essentially what happened was uh, Rachel was put in this uh, position where she was unfortunately killed during a dope deal. And they, uh, they being the legislature, came out with a, uh, a new law very soon after called Rachel's law and mandated that all of the state of Florida have these certain conditions on their informant handling programs. One of which was you have to make sure if you're going to handle informants, you have to make sure that you have an informant handling program, which we did. You also have to make sure that anybody handling an informant has been trained on that program. And so at that point I was in the training division, they tapped me because of my previous experience in narcotics to handle that so i trained all of the detectives or potential detectives all of the supervisors in the agency at the time on informant handling I, I created and developed a course i talked about who rachel was and what the mistakes were in her case then i got into our policy so you'll understand also essentially what the law says about informant handling is exactly what our policy was it was up to that point so thank goodness we had been doing things the way we should have been. We, there were a few tweaks that we needed a hand uh, that we needed to fix, but we fixed them. So it was kind of a great honor to be the point person for informant handling. I mean, uh, I wasn't in narcotics anymore, but uh, obviously that was one of the things that I got good at at some point. So when Rachel's law became law, then. Uh, and subsequently thereafter, I, was, I I handled, you know, new batches of detectives or new batches of supervisors and taught them informant handling. I got my training, by the way, from 80-hour DEA uh, narcotics officer's school, and then I went to the advanced school, which is another 80 hours. So, I mean, I had extensive training in the topic anyway.
0: Right, that's, that's the stuff of TV shows.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so you're saying she was killed as an informant? Yes. And this was prior to your... That's that had to be hard for. Yeah, it wasn't everybody involved. Yeah, she
1: wasn't part of our agency. She was being handled by the Tallahassee PD. But but just some of the impositions that uh, she had been put in, and some of the safety measures that maybe weren't followed, just uh, or even some of the red flags of a of, hand, of doing a dope deal with an informant maybe weren't picked up on quite as quickly. And unfortunately, they took her. The, the two guys that were going to sell her all the dope took her to a park and they murdered her. And took and took the money. I mean, that was the point. They robbed her.
0: Did they know? Did they kill her because she was an informant, or they just wanted the? They money? They
1: killed her because they wanted the money. It, it, she she set up a dope deal that was way over her head. And 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 you know, depending on who you believe, she was pushed into it. Kind of, you know, she she mm-hmm. just for mm-hmm. whatever reason thought that this was going to absolve her of her charges or they convinced her of that, which is kind of a no no. Either either you're gonna cooperate and you you deal with your level of drug dealer or you're not. It's not a big deal. Like you you, you can still go through the court system and, and handle it. I don't I don't mean to make light of it. She's you know, she was a bright young person. She just got caught up in some trouble and then, you know, was killed. Murdered.
0: What generally makes a person an informant? Is it because they're trying to get a lighter sentence, or
1: uh, it could be a number of things. And, and that's clearly one of the first things that you want to establish as uh, somebody who handles informants. You want to establish their motive. So people become informants because, and first of all, they have to be free of, of um, you know, criminal charges, or the criminal record can't be of violence, or you know that kind of thing. But secondly. They're either trying to get a reduced sentence on their charges, like they say, like you say. There are, there's also another sect of society that does this for money, and you know, some federal agencies mm. use informants and they pay them. And then uh, th- there is, I'm sure, somewhere in this world, there's a, there are informants that use this to fish for information from police and get rid of their competition just as well. So that's another reason why you have to get really uh, down and dirty and make sure that you understand what their motivation is and keep them, definitely keep them on their toes and keep them doing legal things to help you find the illegal stuff. Uh, There's also a whole other part too uh, that I didn't think of in, in, in recent times Uh, there are family members who Want to exact the revenge on their dope, de- them, on their family members' dope dealer. In other words, with the prevalence of fentanyl or, or heroin, when somebody dies of an overdose, sometimes you'll get a brother of the one that was killed to step up and say, Hey, I'm gonna, I wanna work with you guys and uh-huh. I wanna go get, I wanna get that guy and put him in prison. So I'll do whatever, I, you know, I'll wear the wire or whatever you, you know, whatever you need me to do. Again, you have to be very cautious of that because you don't want them to be over excited and you don't you definitely can't entrap anybody into doing something they wouldn't do but so there is a whole different you know angle to that as well
0: i don't think i could do it i'm a really bad liar <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it's dangerous yeah. both undercover and you know one wrong move
1: Yeah, right or, or just uh, or just yeah. say the wrong thing at the wrong time is is not <laughs> it's hard to recover from that sometimes. right <laughs>
0: Well, let's, I think this is a great segue to Drew Breezy Uncuffed, right? What I, here's what I jotted down about what I love about Drew Breezy Uncuffed. And then I want you to talk about what Drew Breezy Uncuffed is. What I love about what you're doing is that you're breaking down myths and untruths that are being spewed about law enforcement and you're doing it in a patient and inviting way. You are not combative or dismissive. And I created a line for you, and I hope you like it. You're you're promoting discourse, not discord.
1: Oh man, yes, yeah. Well, we've we've that's beautiful. We've we've lost the art of discourse. We don't have discourse anymore. We have we have uh, crips and bloods, and that's it. There's no meeting at the table and, and and enjoying a meal and having a polite conversation where we disagree, and then we leave and go back to crip land and Bloodland with a new opinion. It's just sh- shouting each other down until we get our, our, our voices out or our voices heard. But I refuse to one back down because the officers on the street right now have no choice but to back down. Like I- I'm not saying that in the cowardice sense. I'm saying that in the, everyone's holding a video camera waiting for them to, to they're, they're agitating them on purpose. That's exactly why I do what I do. Like, I I'm, I want to be able to, to tell our side of the story without, uh, with sometimes peppering in details that I don't think I would have been able to pepper in as an active officer, because it's not just being held to the standard of being a deputy sheriff or being a law enforcement officer and you've got to, you know, your conduct has to be above reproach they use that in court often so like <laughs> you're 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 on the stand for a case about say uh, a kidnapping and you're answering questions about something you liked on social media and that that may be racially charged in their opinion or they can paint to the jury so that's where a lot of this comes from like i haven't been able to defend myself I definitely haven't been able to defend them. and as we you know we get back to minute one of this conversation, that's in my DNA. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna defend. Now, not necessarily defend if they're wrong, but I am gonna bring up some points and let's let's discuss it and let's have our discourse.
0: So for the folks who haven't seen it and I highly recommend they do, I can tell you my impression, I'll let you describe it is most of the time it's short form. there are some long form. And there's nothing you're saying that's offensive. It's all factual, but you're tackling tough topics. I made a list of some of the things I listened to. For example, you went through the Gabby Petito case, Brian Laundrie, at a a point at which he, he was missing, I think. But you went through that body cam, step by step by step, in an effort to help people understand why those officers did what they did. I thought that was really effective. Well, thank you. And because I watched that and I, I've done a lot of work with the domestic violence, the subject of domestic violence. So I had a sense of what you said, but you helped me better understand it. You you did a great one on the Jacob Blake incident, which I, I thought you did a very good job of Explaining what the police officers were facing when they got there, what was really going on—not what the headlines in the paper said. You talked about Breonna Taylor, and you know what happened there. And lately, you've been spending a lot of time on the Uvalde response, which you know I see is really trying to help law enforcement. It's 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 a difficult.
1: Uh, Ubaldi is a completely raw nerve, and I understand yeah, that. Yeah. I, people, uh, you know, I had a conversation with somebody on in my DMs the other day. People are still grieving, right? So they're in the they're in the stages of grief, and even though it's not their, it may not be their children, they're they're grieving, and they're they're hearing me say yeah, because everybody wants someone to blame, and I, and I I do understand that. Even cops right now are very quick to blame the cops that were there without full facts out, and would you want as one of those cops even, even down to the micro level of being one of the guys in the hallway with the shield and the long gun, would you want that blood on your hands if it didn't belong there? Would you just surrender and say, yeah, man, we really screwed the pooch on this one. We lo- we listened to a bunch of kids get murdered. No, you, you wouldn't do that. We keep in perspective that the, these 19 babies were murdered and two teachers were probably protecting them and they were murdered. But. We can't just automatically say this is the reason why they were murdered and just accept that and then move on and then try to establish legitimacy within the community. You don't think that a, an officer on the street is going to hear the word coward for the next year or, or, or year or two or, oh, you were just arresting people outside the building. And, and you know, I, I could tell you, I, I started after Rodney King, but even so I, I started in the communication center around Rodney King. I could tell you that people that happened a whole country away, basically. It happened on the other coast. But people would call our communication center, and that would be their first response. Oh, you just want to beat black people or whatever. So the uniform is is nationwide. And whatever somebody in a uniform does is representative of what every one of us would do, which is not true. That's That's completely not true. It, the same holds true if you don't have experience in it, and and this is where I come across as arrogant, but it's sometimes passion, you know, confused with arrogance. If you don't have experience in it, I do, and I'm trying to explain to you, nobody in their right mind, first as a human being, second as a police officer, would stand in a hallway and listen to to 19 19 kids scream and and shout and get murdered, and it wouldn't happen. So. If it doesn't make sense to you and it doesn't make sense to me, why does anyone think that it makes sense that those <laughs> those guys standing in the hallway, you know, why, why would it make sense to them? And it wouldn't. So there obviously is something we're missing here. There, there's, a, there's something that's either not being said or, and of course, you know, we just, everyone goes down that cover up rabbit hole, but there's something that's, that's missing. So that's where I come in. That's where Drew Breezy come in, comes in. That's where Andrew Baxter, driving Drew Breezy, says, hey, tell them. Tell them what you know. Tell them what it could be. And it's not met with open minds. But the other part of this is I don't know if how many open minds have heard what I said. I can tell you I know how many closed minds have heard what I said because they're very vocal and they say very mean things sometimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can handle that. And I understand the nation's mourning. And I understand th- this is, it's a, it's a tragedy. I mean, it's, it, it's good God. I mean, it's the most unimaginable thing you can think of. But at the same time, I, I'm, I'm not going to allow people to just lob grenades into the middle of those police officers who are already suffering. And, and say, even the Uvalde even the chief, and, and just say, you guys have blood on your hands because I don't expect them to just say, "Eh, you got me on this one. There's, there's no. more to the story.
0: Right. Well, talk about suicide risk. I mean, these officers seeing what they saw and being accused of what they're being accused
1: of. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm, know. I, I, I am a firm believer and I don't have any data to show obviously I am a firm believer that today's law enforcement officer, the epidemic that we're experiencing in law enforcement suicide is based in societal pressure because social, we didn't, there was always police suicide. It's access to firearms. It's, it's trauma that, you know, seeing things that you can't unsee, but now there's social media. Now now the critics that used to be just critics because they read it in the newspaper and shared it at the dinner table are sharing it with everybody. Usually anonymously, they're making false arguments or false accusations of, ask yourself if you've ever called 911, did they ask for your race and sex? Because it, did, it doesn't happen. You, you call 911, they put the call in the system, and a guy like me gets it on a little computer screen, and I'm running people off the road to come save you. And I don't care what you look like. I don't care who your ancestors were. I don't care who my ancestors were. We're dealing with today, and we're dealing with your emergency. And whether you want me there or not is a different story. But I'm coming to help you because you called me to do that. That is my job. So I, I just I don't appreciate the the blanket, just the 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 generalizations of law enforcement are racist. Law enforcement are cowards.
0: In all of the things that you cover, everyone is so quick to judgment, and there really is no. Let's take a moment and figure out what happened. How do you choose which cases you want to talk about, and then how how do you get your information? Like with the Gabby Petito case, I guess that was you got the body cam, and you broke it down bit by yeah, bit. Yeah,
1: that's uh, th- how did how do well, ch- when I see it it's garnering a lot of negative attention or when I, when I see, I don't know, there's just probably something that strikes a chord in me that says it's time to defend here. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. In the sense that in the, in the uh, example of Gabby and Brian Laundry, I reviewed the entire body. Cam- That's the other thing. <laughs> like I do all the homework before I talk and then, you know, so you can make your judgments if you want. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of telling you the way it is. I'm not really asking you if, if you agree with me or not. But the, and, and it's fine for people to ask right. questions, of course. Right. But with Gabby and Brian, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, I did teach interviews and interrogations for, for quite a long time. And, and you know, I, I do know how to read body language. And I do, I have dealt with domestic situations. And I've been in the shoes of those officers. Like, you can't predict what this guy's going to do in two weeks. Like All you can do is do what you're going to do with him that day. And whether they made mistakes or not, that's kind of between them and God, I think. But I, I just research the best way I can. And, and I'll tell you the difference between civilians in this world and cops in this world. We're conditioned to find facts. We're conditioned to testify. We're conditioned to write down facts in a police report. It's even the, it's even the difference between us and the media. There's nobody on CNN or Fox News or ABC or CBS or Anna Navarro or Whoopi Goldberg that's going to say, okay, at the top of the show today, I'm going to te- swear to tell the truth and the whole truth. No, they're doing it for, for brevity's sake. They get the, they, they, get, they pick and, ch- maybe not necessarily pick and choose to, to, uh, on purpose, but they get the highlights and they talk about the highlights and it's edited cleverly sometimes and uh, maybe out of order. And it's all based in advertising dollar. You're you're selling you're selling your story so you'll get more viewers because more viewers will means you can charge a higher amount for your advertising. I'm just some dude with a social media account and I'm conditioned to find facts and I'm conditioned to testify those facts. So generally speaking, I know my stuff before I start saying it. And I I, I do I, I get embarrassed and I correct I, I get corrected a lot because I'm not right 100% of the time, but I do my best. I I do my absolute best to make sure that I come from a place of intelligence and a place of healing. Like I'm trying to give people something to hang on to, just an alternate opinion, so we're not always mad at the cops.
0: The world that the negative narrative on law enforcement is creating is harmful for everyone. It's like one of the things you mentioned in an article you wrote for the Law Enforcement Today website. You wrote, we see headlines like, police kill teen, but you rarely see teen shooting at police is killed in a gun battle.
1: Yeah, I, it's, I, I do believe that there is a media bias. And I, I don't, I think that it may be based in, in academia now. Like, that's what they're churning out. I, I don't think that there are journalists Per se, if they are, it's a small percentage. I, I think that there are people that were tainted by academia. I, I told you, I spent some time at University of Louisville. Ironically, I was there during the Breonna Taylor shooting. I had nothing to do with it, obviously, but and and the things that I saw in emails or in posters on that campus, I, I was appalled. Hmm. I, I was just like, you're you're not you're not teaching these young minds anything. You're you're molding these young minds to be in disbelief of an actual reality. I I take issue with a lot of what academia is churning out. Like so if they're always anti-police, the headline is going to read, it's got nothing to do with the fact that this kid was shooting at the cops. Like to them. It's the poor kid that got shot by the police again, here we go again, you know, like always selecting unarmed black men or black men in the community or, and it's a bunch of BS. It's not the truth. And then what What? what really drives me to do this even more is that there's never a retraction. So when the Mike Brown DOJ investigations came out, they, they had the Civil Rights Division do their own investigation under... President Barack Obama, and under Attorney General Eric Holder, believe me, if they they wanted to hang this Darren Wilson, Officer Darren Wilson, the white officer that killed Mike Brown, there's your duo that can do it. So they had the Civil Rights Division do a DOJ investigation, and then they had the criminal part of the DOJ do a criminal investigation into the shooting. Both of them are available online in PDF form, and if you read them, both of them, It debunks the whole hands up, don't shoot. Neither of them, neither of them say anything about how Darren Wilson shot this guy unarmed without provocation, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Mike Brown's DNA is on the gun, so obviously he was struggling with the gun at some point. He was trying to wrestle it away, but that's not what the media wants. That's not juicy. And I, I think by pushing the division... By pushing the arguments on social media and pushing the arguments on TV, they're selling more advertising dollars. But it's getting citizens killed and it's getting cops killed. And it's pushing cops to kill themselves. And that's the danger in all of this.
0: There's a a quote that I took from one of your episodes. You said, I'm doing this to show how misinformation is tearing us apart. And how the people who spread misinformation have an eagle eye and a megaphone when it comes to the outcome but they are very rarely willing to address what led up to what they believe is police brutality
1: you know often often what leads to, what leads to that is the raw nerve because i've experienced it myself is the raw nerve that they've created not what i've created what they've created we you know as much advocating that I do, I I will tell you point blank and honestly, like we don't target unarmed black men. We don't shoot. Well, we had a shooting of an unarmed black man here in Hillsborough County, (laughs) like in the midst of, of all of this chaos or uh, in the midst of all of these accusations. And I can tell you, I was part of the, you know, the response teams or whatever in the civil unrest. The bottom line is this once we had our discourse once, once I held my hand out and shook the hands of the oncoming crowd, because that's literally what happened, I heard, I said things like, I know you want answers, I want answers too, but we're not able to discuss any answers right now. We're not hiding from you, I promise. Then the things I heard in return were, this is not Minneapolis. This was, uh, it was referring to Philando Castile. This is not uh, New York, where Eric Garner was killed. This is not Ferguson. This is Hillsborough County, and that's why we're so stunned. That's why we're so confused. So just as in in the big city, quote unquote, riots or or civil unrest, there was probably about four or five agitators throwing rocks at us and throwing bottles and lighting dumpsters on fire. And those they they didn't even live in Hillsborough County. Those people they were just there to be there. The rest of the people just wanted answers. And I get that. I understand that. I mean, that's the reason, you know, for the shift in law enforcement for transparency, more transparency. So I I completely understand where that's where they're coming from. But it it doesn't perhaps all of that is driven by a media narrative that says Andrew Baxter is a white guy and he is out there on the hunt for you, LeBron James, because you can't, you can't safely walk down your street, LeBron. Knowing me, are, are you kid like uh, things I've sacrificed or things I've done? It, it's not, uh, that's not me. And that's, uh, that's not law enforcement. And, and you know, anybody could say, well, that's not you. It could be the rest of the law enforcement. No, I, I commanded a, 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 an entire platoon of, de- of deputy sheriffs that, they don't have that in their heart. They have saved you in their heart. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. None of that matters. But you're being told otherwise. And that's what's precipitating all of this.
0: Right. And I think they make it worse, really, for if you're a young black man. Now, you know, there is no rational. I'm not saying that there aren't some people who have experienced abuse at the hands of police. But they're, we're creating a world where there's are going to be so afraid of the police, there's no real understanding. I'm, there's no relationship building, you know? Um,
1: I'm trying to think of which case it was. It may have been George Floyd. I'm pretty sure it was, actually. I, I was a midnight shift commander. And right after all of this happened, obviously – Tensions are high. We weren't doing a whole lot of proactive police work at the time, but I made two traffic stops on two different nights. This is God is my witness. The first first traffic stop I make is a, is a guy on the interstate. It's a, He's a young black male driver. And I walk to the passenger side of the car and I look down on the floorboard and it is filled with gun cases. Like it is just nothing but gun cases. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I'm like, uh, like, there is no greater scenario right now than this, than, than what we have here. And I just said, are those empty by chance? And he started laughing and I was like, as long as they stay right where they are, we're fine. Everything is fine. I stopped you because. So we had our conversation. He went on his way. It doesn't mean he was, you know, like, there's no reason to believe he was an illegal gun owner. There's no reason he was, like, if he took a gun out of the case and shot me, well, you got me on that one. I mean, like, I I know what's happening when I'm dealing with this guy. The second traffic stop I made, maybe a night or two later, I, I did the same thing. It was a busy road, and I approached on the passenger side. It was a Hispanic male driver and a black male passenger, and I said, guys. I mean, you make it so obvious. I had to stop you. Do you have any guns in here? And of course the Hispanic guy looks at the black guy, then he points at the glove box right where the black guy's hands and knees are and says, yeah, there's a gun in there. And so the black guy looks at me with this like fear, frozen fear. And I'm like, everyone just relax. No one needs to go into the glove box right now. Everyone just calm down. The potential is always there, but I think them, creating a bo- them being the media, creating a boogeyman out of somebody wearing a badge, especially a white male, and vice versa. Us in law enforcement creating a boogeyman out of a black male, which doesn't happen very often, it's going to happen. It's bound to happen. You, you're, you're creating a cold front that's going to produce a lot of storm. Yeah. What pulled, made you pull them over? I was in an unmarked car and the people be, uh, that were alongside me knew exactly who I was because I had my uniform on. The, those two guys in front of me took off when the uh, light turned green, like they were racing. They were, you know, they were going to race down the highway. So sometimes it just it leaves you no choice but to take action, just on behalf of the law-abiding citizens that are that are around you. So um, I, I made the traffic stop based on their. Behavior and their traffic uh, infraction, and they walked away with a warning, as most people do when I make a traffic stop. To be quite honest,
0: well, and the fr- frustrating part is when people say you pulled them over because of their race.
1: Yeah, I, I I love that argument all the time. I you know I had there was a deputy sheriff that I had to review. He had you know X amount of complaints, pursuits, and uses of force. They were all legit, but you know we have an early warning system, and 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 if if he pops up in the early warning system, you have to review all those things to make sure there's not a common thread. Well, the complaint, the citizen complaint he had was a black female who accused him of pulling him over for being black, basically for driving while black. And as I saw the citation he wrote and the, uh, actually the warning he wrote, not even the citation, and the reason for his stop was her tent was too dark. He couldn't even tell if there was a male driving, a female driving, black female, white female, Hispanic. He had no clue. But her her complaint was not only lodged, it was documented, and it showed up in the early warning system for this great cop. And and he's just out there doing his job like he's supposed to be doing.
0: I had not heard of a, something called an early warning system. I mean, I'm assuming most departments have something like this.
1: Any. Progressive city in America has some type of bias-based profiling reporting procedure established already. And in fact, to receive any kind of federal funding or for just just for legitimacy in the community, you're more than likely going to have to have some type of bias-based profiling reporting procedure. And none of it is ever taken lightly. Nobody in law enforcement wants that on our backs. It tarnishes, it tarnishes the badge. So if you report biospace profiling, you should expect it for it to be thoroughly investigated and not hidden. And if it's some for some reason hidden or swept under the rug by your perception, by all means, shed light on it. But generally speaking, law enforcement, the more progressive agencies across the United States have bias-based profiling procedures, they follow those procedures pretty closely.
0: Let's go back to the beginning for you, which was working in the, yeah. the you call it yeah. the comm center, or the communication center. And so just, just uh, to be clear, 911 call takers are are talking to civilians, people who are calling in. Yes. 911 call taker relays the information to the dispatcher. Yes. The dispatcher relays it to law enforcement.
1: Now, now in a perfect world, that's what happens, because there are some agencies that are either so small or so understaffed that the person on the phone is actually the person talking to the police.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. You started out as a dispatcher in part to help get hired by the sheriff's office, and then you ended up back there later in your career, and it, this is really something you're very passionate about. So... First of all, you talk about them as the first first responder. Yes, and you you talk about how the trauma for them, and rather than telling you what you say, I'll let you say it. But you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> experienced a lot of trauma. Uh, like you, you listen to a lot of things that your brain probably wouldn't process anywhere else. Like you understand that it's a job to do and, and you know, but you can't reach for the phone and and help people. And that sometimes plays tricks on your mind to begin with. But the, the horrible things that you hear, like, you know, I I have uh, some very close friends who, who listen to multiple suicides. I have very close friends that listen to a murder uh, on the phone, like is on the phone with somebody and, and, The the person on the phone saying, he's going to shoot me, he's going to shoot me, and then here's gunshots, and then the phone drop, and next thing you know, she's testifying in court in this murder case. So these are things that people, you know where it dawned on me, Abby, this is is way beyond when I started as a dispatcher, but I I got a call one night, I was a shift commander, and there was a busy road, and the call came in, a citizen called and said, hey, this guy ran the red light, A, a motorcyclist ran the red light, and he was decapitated. So obviously a big response because a lot of traffic control and we have a fatality on our hands and, you know, fire and EMS and everybody's showing up. And so I I see this in the call as I'm driving there. I'm thinking, man, I I don't want any of the deputies that work on this platoon to have to endure that without me being there. Like, I'm not going to avoid that. I'm going there to do my job essentially and make sure that I support them. And so I get to this to the scene, and I'm standing in the middle of the road with the fire captain, and I see this helmet laying there, and I, I'm like, "Hey, man!" Um, <laughs> like <laughs> just an uncomfortable silence, but hey, man, is that is that the guy's head right there? And he looks at me like I'm crazy, and he's like, "No, no, that's his helmet. His head's on his body. Like he's, you know, we're treating him over there. He's he's clearly still has his head." So, you know. The citizens saw the helmet topple off, and the first thing they said is that this guy was decapitated. Well, you fast forward, like, you know, three or four hours later, we're clearing the scene, and I'm driving away, and I get a message from the dispatcher. And she's like, hey, uh, did that guy really get decapitated? And I'm like, oh, man, I I didn't even think of this. Like, nobody thought to go back and tell the dispatcher, hey, it's okay. There there was no decapitation or... And it really dawned on me at that point, nobody gives them any closure. They, they have to, in their own minds, fill in the blanks of what actually happened. Whether it's a suicide that they listened to, like the last living words of this human being were in their ear. And the guy shoots himself, officers show up, do the cleanup, do the investigation, do whatever. But the, the person that did all the talking to him and tried to talk him out of it and, and Took all of their last will and testament because people do that from time to time. They never get the closure of what the scene was like. Was there any? It, they left a note. They said that they tried to do this two or three days ago. There was nothing you could do. They don't get that closure. And that's going to work on somebody's mind. There's obviously academic studies that show that the trauma is no different. The danger is different if you're present, the trauma is not any different between hearing it and seeing it. I mean, it's kind of even worse if you're listening to it because again, you can't do anything about it. I, I worked in there in the co- as a, as a dispatcher. When I got back there, I saw the exact same thing going on. There's nothing. There was nothing really standing out to me that they were doing to fix the mental health issues. They were still holding them to the standard of the deputies, but not giving them the care and uh, closure and. Just basically the, the the loving heart that you need to to give people like that they're they're suffering. Uh, I said I was going to do something about it, and I did. I, I did a research project, and and I f- I discovered these things. Like, I wasn't the first one to have discovered this, obviously, but again, I, I'm going to talk about it. Like, it's probably it, it, there are probably things you don't talk about, or or that, that people don't realize. Like when you call 911, sometimes people don't re- know that. The person you're talking to on 911 is not the same person that shows up at your house. When you're calling 911 and they're asking you simple questions like, "Are they still bleeding? Are you able to do CPR? Are you able to?" You know, nobody wants to hear that when they're holding their loved one that's dying. But these are pertinent questions, especially if it's a armed person or, or or a domestic of some sort or like these are very simple questions that nobody wants to answer understandably but the the 911 call takers have to draw that information out to keep everybody safe. They sometimes feel like they're marching these officers into their deaths and they're trying to get this information out of these citizens the best that they can and we're dealing with the best people at the worst times. so there's always a special place in my heart for these dispatchers. I'm always going to advocate for them and when I say first first responders we don't get you don't get the call. You don't get a Uvalde, there's an active shooter call without somebody calling 911 and somebody from 911 telling the dispatcher on the radio. You you don't get, when, when think of this too, the chaos of a car accident on the interstate. So you're driving down the interstate and the traffic's already backing up. There's 30 or 40, you know, cars backed up and there are two cars wrecked. You can see somebody hanging out the side of one of them. As a 911 dispatcher, people call 911 until they see the red and blue lights. So, if they're if they're looking at this accident and they're 60 cars back, they're still calling 911, 911, 911, and those there's sometimes three or four operators for an entire county, they're overwhelmed. Like you you know, they're being peppered with 30 or 40 911 calls at the same time. And it just creates a lot of chaos and confusion in there, and you're trying to separate it, and you're trying to get the information out and get help to the people that need help. And there's just a lot of things that people don't think about in that comm center, and they don't treat them as equals or as peers. They see them as clerical staff, or they're even classified as clerical staff. And and I don't think that that's fair. Like I, the biggest hurdle for me was, you know, I, I understand I'm exposed to more danger, but I deal with the same trauma that the dispatchers dealt with. And that's a 24-7, 365 operation that works on your mind, and they deserve so much more than they're getting.
0: Right, and well, the first time I heard about trauma for dispatchers was through a nonprofit organization in Washington state called Code 4 Northwest. They'll arrange peer support, counseling, and inpatient treatment. It's all volunteer, all confidential and they'll do that for all first responders and their families and they include dispatchers and call takers. My friend who runs it said, you know, just imagine you're looking at a computer screen and you're hearing the screams and you're you're sending officers into God right. knows what and then the call ends. <laughs> right. And it's like did, did everybody die? You're did right. everybody live? You know.
1: It's a movie like it's it's you don't get to watch the the ending.
0: Well, and you even said, it's like, you've got four walls, you know, you've got, you have nowhere to go. So to bring it back to Drew Breezy Uncuffed, you did an episode called 10 Things to Consider, Emergency 911 Dispatchers. How their mental health is often overlooked, how the trauma they suffer is overlooked, and you give 10 things to consider based on your experience. So I really encourage people to listen to that because you break down their trauma, but you also give ideas on what can be done about it, like including him in the debrief, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, let's make sure everybody knows where to find Drew Breezy Uncuffed.
1: Okay. Instagram is Drew underscore Breezy, B-R-E-A-S-Y. I have a a Facebook group known as drew breezy uncuffed you can send me a friend request as drew breezy also but i'm going to send you an invite to the drew breezy uncuffed i am on youtube as drew breezy i'm on linkedin as andrew baxter that's my real name and i have a link tree in my bio for instagram where i kind of centralized everything where i keep everything
0: okay you're easy to find and i just i want to really thank you for being here today And I want to thank you for what you're doing, because I think that you are reaching people who who need to know and who want to know. But I think you're probably also helping law enforcement who are who can't speak for themselves.
1: I I appreciate you saying that, because that's probably the most frequent direct message I get. Like, thanks for speaking up, because we can't. I will tell you, Abby, you're you're probably the most important part of this conversation, because the civilian people that don't know or don't care to ask. Are usually the ones that have the biggest judgments. I can't underscore how important it is to have conversations just like this so that I can verify what your line of thinking is and and you can do the same for me.
0: Well, thanks again. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Abby. I will put all the information on where to find Drew Breezy Uncuffed in the notes to this episode. Thanks for tuning in.